0: Welcome to Never Meet Your Idols, a podcast where your idols get real, whether like they like it or real. not. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Hey, here we are. Episode <laughs> 9, Series Episode 9, Series 2, Season 2. Season, Season
1: 2. two. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes here we are and that means the next episode is the season finale yeah I don't even really know what that means that just means we get to like take a break for a, take a break while from Jesus Christ we need a break <laughs> editing and <laughs> yeah being into yeah. rock stars yeah exactly too many rock stars um today we have Ian Asbury from The Cult which is crazy who is it, a legit rock star legit Um yeah, it's gonna be crazy. And uh we got so many questions for him. I can't deal. I can't even I just stopped reading them. I just can't. Sorry. Full disclosure right now, we probably didn't read your question.
0: (laughs) There was so many. I mean, we'll see if we can get through any of them, but yeah, we'll try. The last few weeks, like every day, it's yeah, my phone just like someone else. I know.
1: But you know, Ian has a lot of stories and he very interesting. He's a lot to say. Yeah. Um, so I think we should just let him talk and I'm sure a lot of fan questions will get answered as he talks anyway. Yeah, exactly. But we did get a couple voice memos. So that's always exciting. Yeah. I like when people do that. Um yeah, do more of that. And you know, last episode we said something about how we never remind people to rate the show and leave reviews. And um so we asked you guys to and you did. Yeah. Which is amazing. So now we're just going to, what else can we ask you for? <laughs> like, oh, you listen to us. Um, keep reviewing five stars. Five stars. Telling your friends. Telling your friends. Uh, retweeting or whatever it is, even though we have not been on Twitter <laughs> in a long time. We'll get back on that. Um, and oh yeah, we have a YouTube channel that has all the like little promo videos from the episodes, the highlights, real so subscribe to that, and what else can we have you do? Oh, and season finale guest, this is a spin, non-musician, <laughs> Zack
0: Snyder, the filmmaker. Which is, yeah, complete U-turn and what we've been doing, but why not? Yeah, there's no rules. of Rock stars, no rules. He's, he's somebody's idol. He's definitely
1: somebody's idol. He's definitely a lot of people's idol. Yeah. I'm actually, like, looking at, he has Millions of followers. Um, yeah, so we're gonna be talking to him about maybe music, maybe not. Yeah, we'll see. Um, okay. Well, Ian is ten minutes early. So <laughs> great. This is good. More time. Okay. Um, let's get him in.
0: Here's your idol, Ian Asbury. Hello? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi.
1: Hello. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. We're really excited and we got so many questions. Yeah,
0: it was Fan
1: questions. It was insane. We honestly couldn't get through them all.
0: Yeah, this is the most we've ever had. Yeah, of any guests. Yeah, I think you
1: like knocked out Lanigan. Yeah. Mark Lanigan had the most for a while. He's got a lot of
2: devotees, Lanigan
1: you do too (laughs) (laughs) i try not to pay attention
2: i try not to pay attention to it i'm like "Mm." um
1: but the first question we ask every guest is if you've met um, any of your idols Mm -hmm. and what what stories you have
2: which one (laughs) which which idol the first one um probably like let's go let's roll the cameras back um I guess the first idols I really met properly face-to-face was a clash in oh, cool. back in the oldie days when you used to wait outside the gigs for your, you know, your heroes to come out the door. And we were at the Glasgow Apollo and I think it was a 16 tons tour, maybe about 1979. I was probably like 17 and, uh, Remember, Cosmo Vinyl was like their road manager came outside. It was pissing with rain, and we're like it's about twenty of us outside, just waiting to see them, you know, get in the van or whatever. And Cosmo Vinyl goes, "Right, all right, lads, come on in. You know, everyone, come on in." And I, so we all went in, and he said, "Right, now sit down." This is the Glasgow Apollo. So it's got these old velvet chairs that've been just totally destroyed. We're sitting there. It's about twenty of us, and he goes, "Yeah, the lads will be out in a minute." I was like, "What?" what bands actually going to come out and meet us this is a clash so this is my first introduction to how you interact with fans and after that i was just when i got into some death call and everything i thought oh that's what you do you let, you let people sleep in your bed you know you <laughs> you people, i mean i just took it from these guys so i sat down and uh with the guy and they all came out and they were amazing they were so cool like Joe Strummer was so cool. He asked everybody, you know, where are you from? Did you like the show? We were just sitting there like, jaws hanging open, minds blown. Yeah. I remember sitting next to Paul and who was probably the coolest looking guy, right? Amazing looking guy, bass player. I mean, if you are a Clash fan, Paul yeah. has the most amazing look. And they just looked like they're from another planet because it was so cool. The, the hair, everything, the clothes, they were just dialed in. I mean, we were wearing basically like, we were just, sort of nouveau punks and we were wearing whatever we could get like our school trousers you know you went to school like polyester school trousers made into drain pumps so they'd be super tight but was still crap you know and my sister's sewing machine and i had a harrington jacket on I, I had a harrington jacket on black harrington with crass on the back who was kind of like <laughs> an arch nemesis of them but i was into both bands it's kind of like you know anyway so simon is sitting there and he goes uh Goes, yeah, man, how's it going there? And I, say, he said, you want to smoke of this? And I'm like, smoke of what? I mean, I'm a kid. I mean, like, i have not really had too much experience with, you know, with uh, narcotic substances. And I had a, I had a hit in the joint from Paul Simonon, and, and I'm like, oh my god, what is this? Is just. <laughs> <laughs> I, went, I went home and my mind was blind for literally months but this was a time when you'd buy a ticket for a show and you'd stick it on your bedroom wall and you'd stare at it for months and months and going out you get yourself ready I mean I used to use we didn't have hairspray couldn't afford it so my dad would send me to the shops to get eggs six eggs they'd be, he'd go where's all the eggs I'm like my hair spiky I used to use the egg whites to spike my hair. Amazing. And that's what we did. We just use what a DIY. You did whatever you could, right? But that was the first yeah. time I met anybody that really blew my mind. And then after that, I guess there was a band called the Ruts, who were like this, kind of like um, they were a punk band, you know, four-piece punk yeah. band. Um, and was it Glasgow? mid Glasgow University, because oh, I was living in Glasgow at the time, and I used to go to the university. But to go to the university. You had to get students to sign you in, so you'd be. And I'm I'm English, and they're all Scottish, right? So it's all like Scotland, you know, Glasgow. My was quite <laughs> I was going to Glasgow to talk with these kids, and like, can you get us and I buy you a drink, you know, and get you a drink. <laughs> like pints were about fifty pence. So you get students sign you in, and you get to the gig. And this gig was the Ruts. And then after the show, I met them, and they were like, right, it was just. A, I don't know what it was. It was just so much more into action with fans and bands back then it was all if you're a punk you're a punk and it was like this tribal identity didn't matter what your background was on on any scale there was no discrimination it was completely inclusive you know it was, um really um diverse in terms of yeah the punk who could be a punk and you know so we were just all punk kids together and I said come back to the hotel let's hang out it was like the next thing i know two days later, I'm sitting in a hotel room. I've been given a bottle of vodka and their dogs to look after. I've been waiting for two days now. My Dad's like, mm-hmm. where did you go for two days? I was like, I met a band. I went on the road with them. So I was on the road like at <laughs> 17, kind of doing this. And then I was a stagehand and, you know, just then oh, it just wow. all rolled, rolled uphill until it started rolling downhill at some point. But, <laughs> yeah, but that, I think The Clash was really very special. And yeah. I ended up opening for The Clash in 82 with the Southern Death Cult. We played with oh, them the really? Full circle. There's even more yeah. time growing. Because I, t- I told them a story and they were like, yeah, yeah, it's all right, yeah, yeah, come on in. Have a couple of drinks, you know. That was it. It was always like a can of lager and maybe a cigarette, you know, unless you were with Crass, who would give you a cup of tea and a roll-up cigarette straight to that <laughs> head
1: Fancy. Because they were very conscientious.
2: <laughs> so you'd, you'd get some kind of like... You know, you, they spend some wisdom on you. And they used to get you to do things at the band Crass. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the band Crass.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know,
2: punk band. So I followed them as a homeless punk kid at this time. And now I'm 18 and I'm following Crass and go to all the shows. And they would make you work. I mean, you had to, like, help them with the gear, you know. And there was loads of kids following Crass, loads of kids unemployed. You know, loads of kids that were homeless from all different backgrounds. And we'd like, you know, nights you'd have to give out badges or or the, you know, the fanzines they made and flyers and, you know, they have to bolt the dressing room door closed and get everybody in there because the skinheads were coming in, beating everyone up. It was crazy scene, wow. you know, but crass. So, yeah, I actually got to stay with them at their house. I uh, went to their house, was invited to their house. I didn't have where to live and they said, what are you doing? Where are you staying? I'm like, I stayed one night in Kings Cross Chip uh, train station, which was pretty pretty scary 21 pence in the pocket 10 embassy legal cigarettes sleeping underneath telephones in king's cross station and then i was able i had an address for their house and i went to their house to stay and that was unbelievable because they lived in this old phone exchange it was like back in the day they would have these actual purpose-built buildings there were phone exchanges instead of like operators would sit in there with you know like a Mm -hmm. uh, i guess a messaging bank or whatever they would connect you with different Like they had to connect, you had to call them up. Can I get Knightsbridge 2754? (laughs) And they'd plug you in, right? So they, but they were in like um, Epping. And it was like, I think it was right at the very, very, very end of the uh, central line in London. So I went out there on the tube, walked to the house. They were actually about to start rehearsal. So they said, come on in, put me in the house. And they'd been making tempura i didn't even know what tempura that's
1: was so yet. random yeah no, it's random, right?
2: so they're, they're all vegetarians and they're eating tempura and this is like 1980 i mean this is 40 odd years ago right so yeah. i'd never eaten japanese food i do not know what it was and um this is my introduction to i think well, the best way to get introduced to a culture or anybody
1: mm-hmm.
2: is to eat the food the food yeah the food is, and that's what i love anthony bourdain i love that that he got in there with him and that would start the conversation, the food would get the conversation going and you could learn so much from the food. So they sat me down, I'm eating they started rehearsing. So I'm listening to one of my favourite bands on the planet rehearsing down a hall in Tampora going, well, this is crazy. You know, it's, like, it's mad. It, yeah. my, the early days were like Forrest Gump. I would just found myself in so many situations. And, uh, and then they came back out and then we had a bit more food and then it was like they gave me Black Elk Speaks to read. It was a Penguin copy. Uh, I think it was maybe Eve. Uh, wow. was, all the girls had names like there was G, G Sus, Eve Libertine. The drum was called Penny Rimbaud. The lead singer was uh, Steve Ignorant. And then you had, uh, so I think it was like Harry Rama, Napalm on so Daryl, good. Or Dreadlocks, Andy. Uh, yeah, and then it was Pete on the uh, bass. And uh,
1: and, and my then Pete on, looked, on well, the base. <laughs> and then there Pete, was Pete on the base. on the base. On the
2: base. Uh, he got, actually, he got in trouble because he got caught in town. Legend was that he got caught in town on a bicycle eating a meat pie. So he was reprimanded for that. Cruel, like, staunch vegetarians. And uh, they, they really introduced me to a whole world. I mean, like, she was from New York. She worked for New York Times Magazine. She was a graphic artist. I mean, these guys were, like, very well-evolved in terms of their their ethics and their their I mean the way they ran everything, they rehearsed at home, they they ate all their own food, they had a garden, you know. So cool. They worked the garden. The lead singer lived in a TP, Steve Ignorant. So yeah, <laughs> this is just fantastic. Because yeah. I was you know, I was around Native American well, Canadian. I immigrated to Canada when I was eleven and was exposed to Native American Native Canadian, Northern American culture, Indian culture and became obsessed with that when I was a kid. So I never really, I moved around a lot, so I didn't really feel yeah. fixed anywhere. I was quite nomadic. So uh, this just kind of went, this went with the flow. Press was really important to me. And it didn't really become, like, when the post-punk scene kind of dissolved around about 1984, and then all the death rock, gothic bands were coming up, and, you know, we are kind of part of that wave as well. And then it wasn't probably until like the end of that decade that I really started going back to for when the band got the cult became huge commercially. And I was trying to work out the ethics of it all. Like we signed to mate we signed to an independent label, but now here we are with like all these majors, there's AR people. And all of a sudden you're getting dragged off here and there to a fashion show, to a party or whatever. And I'm like going, this is all crazy and wild, but. I just really want to play music and hang out with people who are into music and i kind of felt myself being then it became like you start getting this i don't know this objectification of you as an icon and and that was a trip because like people would come up to like they knew you really well and i mean i had a really specific look right so um people would like you're the guy from the tv the guy from top of the pops you know they expect <laughs> to be that guy and and you're just like some, you know, you're still a kid, really. Um, but at the end of the decade, it was like when MTV was really in heavy, we were in heavy rotation, and that kind of thing, I started to go like, mm, this doesn't feel good. I don't, I'm not really happy in this environment. You know, I felt that the, the touring and the business of it all kind of took over. And I wanted to go back to the days when we were just, like, we were in the audience. It was tribal. We were in the audience at our friend shows. We were on stage in the audience. We all ate together living in similar communities, you know, it was amazing. It was an amazing time.
1: Were you able to get back to that point, though? I mean, that's, first of all, kudos for even being conscious of that. But I think most people, (laughs) when they become rock stars, they just Uh, fully embrace it and they're like, yes, I want my own bus and my minions can be over there behind
2: me. Well, I didn't, I was was the kind of guy that didn't, didn't like anybody carrying my bags. I didn't, if somebody picked my bag, unless I'd had a few drinks. I didn't even know what the bag was getting picked up anyway. I was getting picked up, um, you know, carried thrown into the hotel rooms, just like, <laughs> I didn't mind the bags. But uh, I think that I began to question, I saw an article in Spin Magazine, late 80s, where Bob, Bob Luccioni Jr., who was the editor, wrote this uh, op-ed about rock and roll's forgotten how to do his push-ups. And I read this and I was like, I agree. It's turned into MTV, and it's all about like how you look, and you're doing these videos that cost an insane amount of money, and we're with Warner Brothers in America, and it's like you're all of a sudden you're a product, and and that yeah. was really I was like wait a minute, no, I, I'm not having that. So um, my response was to get involved, and uh, I kind of came up with the idea for a festival, which is called the Gathering of Tribes, which was conceived in 1989 and happened in 1990. And the idea of that festival was, I was observing the MTV. MTV was beginning to segregate genres aggressively. So it's like, Yo MTV Raps, 120 minutes for alternative music, Headbangers Ball. And then you yeah, had all these pop shows and it was becoming very formatted. And you could yeah. just get the sense that people were beginning to respond to the formats, like, people had very similar looks, so tried to use the same video directors. And it all became about how can you get MTV Airplay? And I was like, this is really quite sinister because we're all kind of being corralled into these different genres when we all kind of hang out because there was a lot more interplay. I mean, we made a record with Rick Rubin in 86, 87, Electric at, you know, Electric Lady Studios. And man, it was like so diverse. We were like part of the Def Jam family. So, you know, mean L O cool j19 i mean we were just all kids together again and there was not what the that segregation was wasn't even spoken there was, there was no segregation we were all we were all young and we we're all coming up we all come from diverse backgrounds and and then mtv were like really going hard at, at kind of setting every, you know genres genreifying everybody and i kind of thought that was pretty sinister so i guess my punk rock roots kind yeah. of came up and was like how can I, what can I do here? How can I kind of counter this? Plus we've gone through all these, you know, socio-political environmental stuff was going on. It was going on in the 90s kids, <laughs> 80s. Yeah,
1: it's not new. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, the festival was really interesting cause I was in, we were opening for Metallica. We are in Rapid City, South Dakota, 1989. And I was walking around Rapid City the day before the show and I met this guy native, guy who's clean is fixing his pickup truck and he looks at me and he goes, Are you a skin? And I'm like, uh no, I'm actually from Britain. I'm not native. I'm not native at all. And he goes, because I had straight long black hair. And he goes, Oh, and he goes, Cool. He goes, Can you help me fix my pickup truck? I'm like, sure. I mean I didn't know anything about mechanics, but seemed like the right thing to do. Fiddling about with wires like dudes do. Hey bro, you might want to check this. <laughs> he looks a bit loose. And then, and so he got his car going and then he's like do you want to come and have some food in my house? And I was like, sure. So I went to his place, which was a an offshoot of the Pine Ridge Reservation. It was government housing, um, it's reservation housing. A place called Lakota Homes. And went to his home, which was very humble, almost like a tract house. you know what those are, the kind of pre built houses. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then they
2: put them on, you know. So and now we're talking, just chatting. he's like, what are you doing? I said I'm doing a show in town, and we were just chatting. I said, what are you up to? And he said, I'm. Um, studying uh, environmental resource management. I want to purify the tribe's water supply. And I was like, that's an unbelievable thing to want to do with your life. And that just cracked right through me all of a sudden. I was like, what am I doing? I'm just Yeah, what
0: dummy. am I doing with yeah. my life? Being I'm a rock like,
2: star. going around. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm barely hanging on, to be honest with you. The pressure was like immense. The time my father was very sick with cancer and the whole thing was just this schism. I couldn't quite, I was never fully comfortable with with the iconic projection and I didn't kiss a lot of the rings that I should have kissed. And then fast forward to the festival, I was, again, sitting in this guy's house, native guy, um, and sitting in his house and he was talking about water, purifying his tribe's water supply. And my brain started going around. And at one point his daughter came in. He, he offered me a drink, he had one can of Coke in his fridge and he gave it to me. And I was drinking it. And he knew he had nothing in his fridge. Yeah. There was nothing in the and his daughter came in. There was an ice cream truck outside. He said, You know, Dad, could I get 25 cents to get an ice cream? Didn't even have 25 cents to give his daughter for an ice cream. But he could give me a can of Coke and I was like, Right, that's it. I'm done. I mean, something's happening. And I just kind of split from the whole program of being a I
1: mean, everything you're saying, it makes me wonder what you think about. Just culture now in terms of yeah. how social media has affected all of us. And I look at young you know, younger generations, and it's terrifying because it is this performative, strange, everyone's a brand. You know, it's like everybody's a brand, everybody's exactly. a brand starting from yeah. really, really young age, and people just want to go viral or be famous or be the equivalent of a rock star for nothing, really, just because they have a bunch of followers, it's very strange. And I don't know how people are gonna like get back, get grounded again, especially when I mean now younger generations, they haven't known anything else.
2: Like media drives so much of this and, and it's yeah. like, okay, great. So so you assume that because it's a certain media publication or platform, that they're experts. There's an assumption there already. Yeah. It's in front of you, it's on a screen, there's a nice font, it's all laid out nicely and you're reading it going like this must be right.
1: Yeah, people don't question it's anything.
2: From, it's weird. It's like question everything. Yeah. 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 Question all yeah, of it. Doesn't sure. matter what the source is.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like
2: always question. That's from Crass as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is no hybrid. All comes back
0: to Yeah, it always comes back. <laughs>
2: <clears> throat> <laughs> throat> oh, man. I wish you guys could have seen it.
0: Me too. Yeah.
2: such a time. We
0: missed out. So going back to the festival.
2: I actually came up with the idea for a festival, and I pitched it to my... Agent, and he found up Bill Graham and said, "He's got an idea for a festival. Might be really cool." My idea was a festival there was that was first of all diverse, and the first point was to have Native American involvement. So it was the first festival in the United States to actually invite the indigenous of the United States to an event. In there, I thought it was only polite to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I was mates with Sam Garden, who I just seen at the lingerie Club. In front of like 40 people. So, like, would you do my festival? I'm like, yep. Because I was made to those guys. But Bill Graham said, Look, I want to do your festival. We're going to put it on. Are you into this? And I'm like, Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. So, Bill Graham kind of put the whole festival together. It happened in October 1990. We had 14 acts for $10. Awesome. And we invited all the social and environmental groups. There was like, you know all the like the radical queer groups in San Francisco with the environmental groups like Greenpeace and then indigenous groups. We had uh, all the concourse areas were full of all these different environmental and social groups. This is 40 years. Oh shit! Is that one there? Right? It's 1990. So Three. so it came up. It happened. I mean, we had Public Enemy headlining, Queen Latifah, cool. Ice Tea, Sam Garden, Indigo Girls, Michelle Shocked the charlatans the mission uk iggy pop steve jones the cramps
0: awesome.
2: um we didn't have a band at the time because we kind of imploded and uh the drummer had gone off and joined guns N' roses and the uh bass player got pulled off the road by his missus got in trouble so we were just the two piece so we ended up playing with steve jones and, and uh, it was crazy it was an amazing it was an amazing event and it was the precursor to other things that came after that but we charged ten dollars Favoured nations, everybody got paid the same, yeah. So there's no squadron, so
1: cool.
2: And then you have people like John Baez going, Can I get on stage? Like, yeah, <laughs> of course. I remember Sinead O'Connor was running around as well, and it was just um, there was an intention behind what they were doing, yeah. They just, which is one thing I think it's kind of gone out of our culture is, is having an um, some sort of altruistic aspect to what we do. And I've kind of probably worn everybody's ears out with conversations about you know, there has to be an altruistic component going forward or an, at least an intention i know everyone's got to wait, put a roof on their heads i'm the same boat but it's just giving a little bit back we've got work to do kids so it's like where do you want to start you know i mean yeah. it's so many places to jump in and when somebody said to me i'm bored Ugh. i'm like excuse me you're bored
1: yeah really it drives wow. me crazy when i hear that there's a lot. There's a lot to a be lot. thinking about and doing and getting down to work with. Yeah, yeah, all the time. A lot to
2: get and just even maintenance. I mean, do you know how long it took to get my hair up? <laughs> no, I was
1: gonna. Say. Yeah, what are you using? <laughs> the product you're using now?
2: Yeah, it's, it's egg whites. Um,
1: Some things never change.
2: Because my hair is long again. It's really wow. long.
1: It's very sleek. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's
2: super long. So I'm like, I'm not gonna cut it again. Because I tried to be. You know, a guy for a second and I got the short haircut and I was like, What have I done? <laughs> you know. I mean if you look at Bowie and it's like, but you're looking at Bowie in the seventies. Yeah. Nobody's gonna look like that yeah, good. I know. You guys, I mean, you guys can do that, but <laughs> no, nobody
1: like, can be Bowie in the
2: seventies. <laughs> like, so I just went, oh, I'll just be who I am. Yeah. Bowie said, I think the quote Bowie said was, as you get older you, you always become the person you were meant to be. And I was like, That's okay. dope.
0: I like That's that. Very cool
2: all that so I thought well I'm just going to be you know the guy that lives in the woods coming out with the hair and just <laughs> be that guy um but uh yeah
1: did you mean yes ever? you did
2: don't stop me on boy I'll start crying Aww. um that's how you start cry
1: cry I'm just kidding uh,
2: I, you can get me I, I I cried the drop of a hat I mean me um,
1: too
2: <laughs> I'm a, a to cry <laughs>
1: yeah but
2: I cried at E.T. I remember I going to see E.T. when I was oh kid.
1: Let's all oh, cry. Yeah.
2: When he was in the storm drain.
0: Oh, God. Okay, you are going to be.
2: on his bicycle? No. You know, he's like, you've got to save him. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was
2: just, that was it. Oh. I was like, oh,
0: my God. <laughs> uh,
2: Brother Bly said, it all went wrong when we lost touch with the wild animals. Does that get you teared up? Let's get there. Yeah. I think we need a mass purge where these things can be said freely without any sense of, you go on Twitter. I I was on Twitter for a minute, and I stepped in it one day. I got the wrong phrase at the wrong time, and it was just like mm-hmm. delusion. I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute! You yeah. don't know what i You don't know my background. You don't yeah, know who I exactly. am. You're know, yeah. about me, you're judging me yeah. based upon color my skin, my yeah. age, my you know the genre I'm associated with. Whoa, let's just let's just roll it all back.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty out of control. You now let's yeah. let's just
2: everybody yeah. take a seat for a second. I mean, everybody's going to get home. And we're going to get this fixed, but we've got to find some place to agree upon. Yeah. So empathy, environment, before we all start just going to each other with digital knives and weaponizing, it's it's difficult. It's hard to communicate. And I know people around and I'm not taking anybody's experience away from them.
0: Yeah, completely. I mean, it's been difficult with COVID as well for everyone. Um, but going to some questions now, I think, Karee, did you have one?
1: I was listening randomly to a podcast the other day about. It's called, I think, the Rewatchables about movies um, and mm. and the backstory behind movies. And one was on that Oliver Stone movie, The Doors, oh. which is hilarious. Um, You've
2: done your research, correct?
1: <laughs> and you no, know, they brought I they brought you up because one of yeah. the sections of the podcast is I think it's called Recasting Couch or something, and it's about or. Casting almost, or something. And they talk about mm-hmm. people who were rumored to have been up for that role.
2: Oh, I'm laughing because I remember the evening.
1: Okay. I want to know. So, were you up <laughs> you for know. the role of Jim Morrison that Val Kilmer ended up playing? Oh
0: my God. Oh. I literally was going to watch this the other day as well. It's so weird. Wait, you'd never seen it? No. And I was like, going to watch it the other night. It's like pretty really trying. But I mean, I know it's been out for ages, but
2: you know, in Liverpool in the early 80s and late 70s, probably the most influential band was The Doors.
1: Wow. I didn't know that.
2: Well, you think about Echo and the Bonnie. Yeah, yeah. for sure. No, they actually had Ray Manzarek produce. um, I no idea. For Lost Boys. Oh, yeah. Great
0: movie. You had Nightmares in Wax,
2: Pete Burns, who was like a baritone. You spin me right round, baby. But he's doing oh, that spin. as Max is different.
1: Biggie Pop was hugely influenced oh, exactly. by Jim Carson. Yeah.
2: but they I were, and that. then Jim was influenced by like in the studio. They were telling like Frank more Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. and Elvis.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. I could hear that.
1: Because it was all <laughs> wow.
2: yeah. That makes sense. Okay, that so there
1: you go. Did you? You were up for the role? Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. Well. I'll give you. I'll try and give you the nutshell without the uh, the big geograph okay. geographical. It's my first interview this year. You've got to, you
1: know. <laughs> Sorry for you. We're like <laughs> cut to the
2: chase. No, no, no. I love doing this. I love <laughs> doing chase this. The you guys. Um, Danny Sugarman was the manager of the existing doors, and he managed the the doors, estate, catalogue, mm-hmm. all of it, and he was amazing. Danny, I think Danny. Danny was a press officer. Mm-hmm at fourteen, fifteen, if you know the story. Yeah. He was in he was in the office with Morrison, uh, the Doors office on Santa Monica Boulevard, mm-hmm. which is now, like, it was an Italian restaurant, I think it's so, a private residence. But Danny got in touch with me back in the old days. It was either probably, like, some fax or whatever, um, you know, telex message, uh, pigeon post <laughs> delivery. But anyway, got in touch with me, on management said he loved, wanted to take me out for lunch. I was like... Danny Sugarman was take me out. I was like, my mind was blown because I'm Doors, like, you know, devotee. So, um, by the way, Bowie was always number one. Um, And so I went out for lunch with Danny. So we had sushi and he said, I'd like to take you out tonight. We're going out. We're going to go out with this uh, director, Oliver Stone. He's he's making a Doors movie on the the band. And, you know, I was like, cool. Because I'd seen Platoon and... You know, um, that was a recent film we'd done, so that was he was a big, big deal, big director, and it's the idea of you know being in a Doors world, and it's like you know Ray might be there kind of thing. I was like, Raymond's Eric,
0: mm-hmm.
2: what? You know, I was like tripping. So that night went out. We went out to some club. Everybody was hammered. Oliver was hammered. I was definitely worse for wear, but still, you know, good pirate, still holding my own. Danny's had a few cocktails as well and I remember you know Oliver Stone saying he's like what do you think about playing Jim Morrison for the film I was like so at that point I'm like you know all full of uh, hubris and like you know drunk 27 year old kid in leather pants and just I'm kind of like oh you know I'm not an actor one day somebody might make a film about me and and then we start talking about the American Indian Movement and American, because he was heavily into the yeah. mm. American Indian Movement, which there is, a, there is an actually correlating story to the film. <clears throat> so anyway, they were, I know they were talking to people like Bon Jovi, Michael Hutchins, who was a friend yeah. of mine, because he told me. And um, they, were, they were trying to cast singers who maybe had a bit of the head and the hair and yeah. all that kind of stuff in the voice. But it felt, I don't know, it was my world. And I had a great night out, and afterwards we went out in Danny Sugarman's BMW and Jordan Bightstead. i at the Mondriano Hotel. He crashed his car. <laughs> typical Hollywood yeah. night out.
1: So do you think that you, if you had to do it over again, would you have,
0: yeah, would you have played? played Jim
1: Morrison in The Doors? Could you have done a better Jim Morrison no. than Val Kilmer?
2: Oh, no. I think Val was a trained actor. I mean, it wasn't just a... But one thing that Ray said about the film, and Ray, got, I think Ray got kicked off the set because like, that would have never happened. You know? Yeah. Get this guy. There. A movie didn't after all. Yeah. You know, it's a movie. Yeah. It's fictitious. I mean, Jim didn't walk around high on acid all the time. No. <laughs> you know, he did regular things. He went to the grocery <laughs> yeah. store. Yeah. You know, sure, there's a scene where he comes back to the grocery store, he's tripping and everything. He's like, yeah. like, that never happened. It's like, it didn't happen. Mm. Jim was a good, you know, he was a good guy. And, you know, he said, when, when he had a a few drinks and then the wild man would come out
0: yeah um
2: uh, no but i'd definitely like to be in some period drama where you could dress up in some extravagant costumes some science fiction thing with prosthetics and costumes That'd be, like you could New made that happen
0: really yeah actually mm. before i forget because maybe this is some relevance because i don't know what this means but i made a record with tom dalgetty last a year ago i think oh yeah yeah and he sent me a message to say to you um how are you getting on with the bobble hats? And I have no idea what
2: that means. <laughs> <laughs> is that anything to do with the- oh, that dude. fashion show? That please. guy, the bobble hats. The bobble hat is kind of like a British traditional. Like in inclement weather, you wear
0: yeah
2: your hat, and usually you have a little pom on the top.
0: Yeah, I
2: don't know where yeah. they got them from. I mean, your grandmother would knit them, right? Yeah, your Granny, Granny would knit you a bobble hat, and they called the bobble on top. So. Slightly being from the Liverpool area, bobble hat is kind of a, you know, you've got your hat on. It's so, all, hey, you've got your hat on, you know, your imagination station, whatever. We have all these trademarked.
1: But now coded, you just can have a bobble of hair instead. I've got you don't a bobble, need a hat. I don't
2: need a bobble hat. I've got the bobble on the head.
1: you got the bobble um, head.
2: I've got the bobble head. It comes off, it just detaches. <laughs> it's my 5G unit. <laughs> when I'm not wearing my tinfoil hat, right? (laughs) People burning down 5G towers.
1: Oh God, leave Ian's hair alone. It's not really a 5G tower.
0: Hello, please leave a message after the tone.
2: Hey ladies, love the podcast. A question for Ian and more of a comment too. I saw him perform with The Doors many years ago. And I'm not actually a big doors fan, but I was really, really impressed with what Ian did. And I want to ask him,
1: Ian, were you trying to imitate Jim Morrison, or do your own thing or somewhere in the middle? And where
2: does that experience rank for you as far as your career accomplishments? thanks for the podcast Bye. career accomplishments, well, from first start, I never ever thought this was a career. It was just like, uh, can I still continue? It's like, please go ahead, just (laughs) keep going. Um, Where does it rank? There's no scales, there's no charts for it. Yeah. You're playing in a soccer stadium in Buenos Aires in front of about 60,000 people during an eclipse, during, I don't know, literally hundreds of fires burning out control in the stadium. They jumped up down so much, they broke the foundations of the stadium. Oh. To see young people reach up for these guys who are like, you know, these older gods, Ray and Robbie, the, um, the amount of passion in the youth for this music and to be a part of that, to be a catalyst involved in that, I can't even, you can't put a price no, I... or a tag on it. I mean, that night was unbelievable. They, they, Everything they could, they ripped up and threw it on the stage. The, the riot cops, tear gas. This was all kicked off. And you're right in the middle of like, five in one, baby, one in five. You know, you're writing that and Robbie's looking at me going like, "No," oh. I said, just keep fucking playing, bro. Because <laughs> if you stop, it's going to be a riot. You know, it's like, wow. it was incredible. It was an unbelievable experience. Um, cool. But the doors experience. I think I'm still trying to digest it. it's a,
0: it's a lot. And I walked away from yeah.
2: 2007.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: It affected me profoundly, deeply, and um, you know, I think being at Morrison's grave with the shares was probably with Ray and Robbie was that was one of the most profound experiences. Um, as profound as profound as sitting in front of Everest, watching the sunset in Everest, or being berated by the Dalai Lama for being late
1: Wait, to a, Did uh, that happen to yeah, you, Yeah, did
2: too? that happen? Yes. I was told off by the Dalai Lama. Wow. In front of several thousand people at Roseland Ballroom in New York. And he said, uh, "He said, uh, nice of you to make it. We've been waiting for you.
1: You were late um, meeting the Dalai <laughs> Lama?
2: No, he was doing a dissertation, a lecture. And there's several thousand people all there. And I, I just, he just, <laughs> he was a cracker. But you don't upset that No. He's actually he's a he's a funny guy.
1: Say something that you're crazy about right now, and say something that you can't stand.
2: Well, I can't stand ignorance. I yeah. can't stand. I can't stand uh, big bigotry, yeah. especially when you know better.
0: Yeah. Hundred percent. And
2: you profess, and you continue that behavior without checking it. You know, you're, you're, uh, uh, an inability to abstract from self.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's unfortunately a, pretty common. Yeah.
2: You know, that's that's something that gets me grow. Um, things I'm excited about? Oh my God, so many things. Um, right now, Mudu Mokhtar. They're a band from the Seychelles region and uh, they're on Matador Records. They're from North Africa. They're kind of like psych North African Sub-Saharan music. They were two rags. They were were all the gear. They are phenomenal. The record is called uh, Victim Afrique or Afrique Victim. I should look it up, actually. I should know this, but it's a new record and it came out. And um, I'm really excited about this label called Seychelles Sounds. I think that's how I pronounce it. Seychelle S-A-C-H-E-L sounds. Okay. It's a phenomenal label. They're putting out this incredible music out from North Africa. And in somehow, if we can integrate this into our cultural programming in the United States, they're coming to the Touring, actually. They're coming to the United States. Cool. The touring oh on the awesome. fall. And with matador And I'm I'm crazy about these guys. And I try and some people, you know, it's like when you found something new, and yeah. you don't quite know what it is yet. You're yeah. trying to explain it. You're like, and and they've got this <laughs> yeah. and the yeah, guitar yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, Just gotta it's hear lit. It. Yeah. And uh, but it's dope. I mean, I'm really into their the music, and uh, that's exciting. Other things, full uh, transparency. full transparency. I'm excited. The Euro twenty twenties on right now. Soccer. I'm like,
0: oh, who, <laughs> who, who's I your team? That. Who's your? I team? think it's it Everton? Did I make that?
2: Laura, you did you. You've done your research.
0: <laughs> we try. Yeah. We've learned the hard
1: way that we need to be a little bit prepared.
2: Good research. I went to see them play. My granddad took me to see them play when I was five. So what cool. was it. Every ten. You know, you get passed on sure. your grandparents. If your grandparents give it to you, you kind of got to support. Yeah. You, you just carry it on. Play. They haven't won anything since 1995.
1: And that's how Liverpool was for a long time. They were just total losers. It was. Oh, you know, your football. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. I miss it. I miss playing. I used to play a lot.
1: Soccer teams.
0: Okay. yeah i was
2: on a team i was on a team i was on a team to my mid-40s and my hip blew up oh. badly that's when you're jumping off stages oh yeah but staff. yeah yeah well landing on rows of seats when everybody gets out of the way
1: Oof. nobody caught you, know. you
2: no get out of the way see him coming
0: like...
2: <laughs> just why are you single right
0: yeah yeah how do you know that <laughs> He's done because
2: his I, research. Ah. Because I had it on my, I was listening to him on Spotify. It's really good. Oh,
0: thank you so much. Yeah. So good. Thank you. And Correa,
2: you're working on a new album, right?
0: Yeah, done.
1: We finished Is done? it done? Oh my God. Just I here. mean, we there's like mixing has to be done.
2: Excellent. I'm excited. That's going to be great. Thanks for talking yeah. to us.
0: This was great. That was fun. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Take care.
2: Bye. Have a great night, Laura. Bye.
1: Bye, Tarek. Bye. See you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Never Meet Your Idols. Join us next time when we welcome Zach Snyder. To submit questions for us or our guests, email us at nevermeetyouridols@gmail.com.
0: at gmail.com. Or send us a message or voice memo on Instagram at Never Meet Your Idols podcast.
1: Until next time, I'm Kare.
0: And I'm Laura Mary. See you you next Tuesday. Tuesday.